From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us on this January 2nd. Hope you're having a great 2024 so far. Lots to get to today, including the BC assessments. They are out, people checking if they are a property owner or renting in the property they're in. Also, perhaps checking in on your neighbours. Also coming up on the show, one of our very own CKNW producers has had a very exciting day when it comes to citizenship. And we'll have that story coming up a little bit later as as well. We're starting off though talking about body cameras and the use of body cameras by police. We believe that it will strengthen public safety and it will enhance uh, the trust, transparency and, and police accountability that we have with the public. That was Constable Tanya Visentine with Vancouver Police. We've talked in the past about Vancouver Police and the rolling out of body cameras. So is this a good move as we see other departments as well following in that direction? Cash Heat joins us now, former police chief in West Vancouver, also former BC Solicitor General and current Richmond City Councillor. Cash, Happy New Year to you. All the best to you, Jill. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking more about this. What are your thoughts about the use of body cameras by police? Oh, I highly support this. Uh, In the era that we're in now where there's more access to technology and information than any point in our history, this introduction of this piece of equipment is long overdue. And it's the missing ingredient that will not only force the individual officers to improve the way they're interacting with individuals, But again, it will dramatically increase the department's capabilities in identifying and solving crimes. What would be the the holdback then? Because what you just said and other arguments that I've heard in favor of this, and even looking at other jurisdictions and other places in North America where this has already been taking place, why would there be or what would the possible opposition be to these? Well, the reluctancy out there right now, and, you know, they're kind of clouding the issue by saying it's a cost factor, but I look at it this way. How could it not be put in place? Actually, the efficiencies that you'll gain from this technology will certainly uh, help with any budgeting going forward. We've had a lack of leadership locally in our police agencies of trying to put this a modern-day policing pillar in place. And you're right, uh, there are other organizations not only elsewhere around the world. In 2005, the European countries started to look at this technology. We had several incidents in the United States, to name a few. The Brown and Floyd incidents where it was people's cell phone video that uh, certainly caused the uh, the, uh, public to raise the uh, issue of body cams for all of our police officers. Toronto and Calgary have had this in place for quite some time. Matter of fact, Calgary uh, used the $10 million to implement this system, and they started to show the cost savings going forward with respect to not only ensuring the credibility of the officers with uh, some of the issues that we have, but certainly from the gathering of evidence and presenting evidence in front of the criminal justice system. Does it, do you think, and looking at some of the places, like you said, where we've seen this introduced and it's it's been several years in some cases, do we have enough information or has there been enough study of this? Does it change behavior, either the behavior of police officers or the behavior of people interacting with police? 
I believe it does. Uh, I know some of the academics that are out there now, they're looking at the meta-analysis, but they're going back many, many years. And I think if you look at some of the current analysis, you'll see there is a change in behavior. There is the transparency part of what's required, which I think is increasing the credibility of how our police operate on our streets. We have to remember that cell phone technology, the high resolution of those particular phones has been around for quite a period of time and you could see as a result of capturing the video. Now, the hypocrisy of this is, Jill, is the Vancouver Police Department who marketed a lot of the stranger attacks that were occurring here, they had no problem getting this video out to the public with respect to what was going on. But at the same time, the reluctancy comes from showing what the police officers are engaged in 24-7 when interacting with suspects, interacting with the public in general. And it's about time that we bring this transparency back to again to not only focus on the gathering of evidence the accountability of our officers but ensuring that the public is aware of what our women and men go out and fight and deal with each and every shift how do they work as far as when you're talking about when they're when they're out and when they're on shift is is there a protocol then or a rule as far as are the cameras i mean within reason obviously not if you're using a restroom or doing something you're on a break but are they always on when you're on or as a police officer you're on shift well, what happens is you develop the standard operating procedures, and I strongly believe that that has to be developed by an outside agency, not necessarily just the Vancouver Police Department. But, for example, when you're getting out of your patrol car to interact with whether it's a complainant or interact with a suspect, the body cam must be turned on. So you have the ability to turn it off and on, but there's certain requirements when officers are engaged with individuals or with people that they must have it on based on the policies. That's a general high-level part of the policy. Of course, each individual agency will look at something which would be unique to their situation. But in general, uh, that's when you must have your body cams on. And would there be then uh, some kind of punishment or penalty or what would it be if an officer then said, oh, I, I guess I forgot to turn it on or, oh, it must be malfunctioning, it didn't record? Well, there has to be a consequence uh, if, in fact, uh, they uh, deliberately did not turn it on or deliberately not record the interaction that they're having. And I think we're fortunate here is that we have the uh, government that's uh, – putting mandatory standards for the use of the body cameras and under the police act there's significant penalties or could be penalties for the individuals that disregard the policy that is in place. This was a recommendation as well that came out of the Miles Gray inquest and people will remember hearing not only that story when that happened but the the jury the coroner's inquest they classified the death of Miles Gray as a homicide which was different from how Vancouver police had classified or how that death had been classified before that. Do you think was the Miles Gray case and and the difficulty in getting information from the officers involved was that kind of a catalyst in moving forward with body cameras? Well, we've had several tipping points, at least I thought were tipping points in this, but the Miles Gray one is probably the most disturbing in recent uh, history uh, with the Vancouver Police Department. I think the credibility challenges that came out in that inquest really questioned uh, why we don't have this technology in place. I I strongly believe, based on what I've 
uh, heard throughout the inquest and read with respect to that, we would have a better line of thinking of what the officers went through and what had occurred in the unfortunate death of Mr. Gray. Would it, would it also be helpful, do you think, if we're talking about, in, in more general terms, transparency and, and the public's trust and, and wanting to know details of, of when we see these interactions, uh, one of the criticisms of that as well was the fact that officers weren't compelled to testify or to share information. Should they not be when there's an inquest into the death of an individual? Well, I strongly believe, and that's my personal opinion based on my experience, not only in the uh, police world, but certainly in my uh, political role and making policy, that absolutely should be part of it. These are public servants. We expect the public servants to act in a certain way. They're guided by legislation, not only federally, but provincially and some uh, somewhat locally. And we must make sure that they adhere to that as professional officers out there protecting the community. And Cash, you mentioned cost, and that has come up in the past. I think it was Winnipeg that had gone down the route of having officers wear body cameras that was scrapped after that program was in place. And the reason given was that it was too costly. Are you concerned that that is, that is something that could be used as a reason, whether it's not expanding it in some departments or stopping it in the future? Well, it uh, continues to be used as an excuse as why we do not need this technology and the fact that uh, it's going to be too costly. But again, uh, how could we not go with this? If you look at the efficiencies with respect to not only, as I mentioned, the gathering of evidence and putting that evidence in front of the criminal justice system, but certainly when you look at the reliability of that evidence that you're getting, uh, whether it's to protect the officer, uh, whether it's to implicate the officer, in some use of force, I think it's very important that we have it because that's where you start to garnish those economies of scale. And, and Jill, in Canada in 2023, 85 uh, people were shot by police, 41 of them died as a result of that. And you start to look at that number and you start to question it. But if we have the actual uh, visual uh, evidence with respect to what was going on, whether they were dealing with a deranged individual or an individual that was a threat to them or others, we would have that almost immediately. And, and you know, again, I think we not only have to look at uh, the 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 positive aspects of it, we've got to look at protecting the officers when they're out there during their shifts doing it, because the majority of our officers are doing what they're supposed to be doing, doing what we expect them to do, but there are incidents that we question, and I think with this type of technology in place, we will no longer have to question them for prolonged periods of time, such as what we went through with the Miles Gray incident. All right, Cash Heed, thank you so much for your time and for joining us to talk more about this. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Well, there is a reason why you are hearing that music right now. It is because one of our very own producers here became a Canadian citizen today. And Leila Khader is with me in studio. Hey, hello. Hi, Jeff. I just got shivers saying that. So I can only imagine. Well, I got to see you just mm-hmm. before the ceremony. I, I got here. Uh, you're still decked out wearing some Canadian, yeah. just so people can, can picture it. You've got the Canadian headband on your desk, had a Canadian flag and was decorated. I know. 
I'm wearing all red. My makeup is red. I have red <laughs> eyeliner for those who are curious. I'm even wearing red shoes. So nice. <laughs> nice. Well, I've heard you talk about this and looking forward to this day. And it seems like like it took a while to get here. But before we get into that, uh, mm-hmm. first, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. What did it feel like today? You you did it online. I know it's still done by Zoom. So what was it like today taking that oath? I feel oath? so privileged and proud. Um, well, eventually, like right now, I have an identity after not having one for a while. Mm. And it's not like any identity. I'm Canadian and Canadian, just like I was telling my colleagues here, can you imagine what Canadian means to me? It is a dream. It is something Mm. that I've been wishing for. Um, And just like so privileged. (laughs) Tell us a bit and go into as much or as little detail as as you're comfortable doing this. But what's it been like? You said it's been a while. Mm -hmm. What has that process been like since you first arrived in Canada until this point becoming a citizen? So I arrived in Canada back in 2019, April. Um, I came under something called the Resettlement Program that's funded by the UNHCR and the Canadian government, Mm -hmm. which is basically resettling Syrian refugees from countries that are economically unstable like Egypt, Lebanon, and put them in European countries, North America or Australia. Um, So we came to here. I I had family here, so my uncle is Canadian. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Once we landed, we get our PR cards, which is permanent residency cards. Uh, Well, after getting the PR, you should wait for three years Mm -hmm. in order to be Canadian. I did. I applied after those three years. However, (laughs) the process took almost two years. So the first I, I, I applied back in April 2022. Okay. So that's when I first applied to my Canadian citizenship. I've done my test in December 2022, and I just heard back today. (laughs) So it's almost two years of waiting. And before that, I did not have any identity. I was refugee Mm -hmm. uh, because when you come by, like the UNHCR, we don't have our passports. We come with a travel document. Also, our passports were taken, so we don't have them. Right. Um, And it's hard it's really hard to have no like identification. So yeah, that's why I'm so proud today. <laughs> well, and you know, it's something I think that that people tend to take it for granted citizenship in that everyone belongs to a country or is from a country. Mm-hmm. And we don't often think about being without a country and being kind of in, in that, that, that place of limbo, but that that's what you were kind of dealing with. Yeah, so just before this, I've lived and four different countries. So I lived in Jordan, I lived in Egypt, and came to Canada originally from Syria and the, when the war started. So we, re, ref, refuging to a different country is different from emigrating because mm. when you go as a refugee, you, you leave everything behind you. So yeah. we started from really scratch. We mm. did not have anything. We went to Egypt. For, for the unknown, and we got the the yellow cards from the UNHCR that shows that we are refugees, um, and it, just like I've never, I I didn't know wh- where I belong to. <laughs> I I think like for a while, I didn't have a home or a place to call home. I was always 
afraid of leaving this country or not being able to live in it forever, like till I got my citizenship today. Right. <laughs> which, which, and that's another thing too. I, I think a lot of people, again, take that for granted and, and aren't in a position and are never in a position where you could be told to leave or, mm-hmm. or you don't have that, that connection. And yeah, what a, it's just really something something to think about for sure uh, you mentioned your your uncle is canadian did, did that did you get to pick then saying we want to go to canada or we're, we, no. we we've lived in these other countries we can't no? pick and choose so no. you know let me tell you before <laughs> so we actually so the the unhcr called us back in 2015 Mm-hmm. And it took them four years to move us to Canada. That was in Egypt still. So mm-hmm. during those, let's say, four years, five years, we've been told that we might go to Sweden. And then they changed their minds to Germany. But then because my mom has a medical uh, or health situation or concern, they thought they should move us to a place where we have relatives mm. just in case my mom if my mom passed away we have someone to look after us because i had two minor sisters right and that was the case they mm. knew that we have an uncle here in canada and my mom passed away mm. um and yeah it was good that we came here also canada is so <laughs> beautiful country i love canada <laughs> I th- just this the stress of that though too when and you and you talk about it so eloquently and kind of not to suggest that that you haven't had obstacles obviously you have but when you talk about it now and and you talk about that so so you actually lost your mom during this whole process as well right so the main reason why we came here is because of my mom uh, we were seeking for cancer treatment uh, in Egypt, we don't have access to healthcare because we're not Egyptians, and we can't go back to Syria because Syria is a war country right now. Um, and the reason why they they took our application and tried to move us to a different country was my mom's situation and that we have sisters. I ha- sorry, I have sisters that are so were so young. Right. Um, we came here, uh, but then the, unfortunately between the process. Uh, the cancer like got spread in my mom's body and I lost her um, back in 2022 yeah last year yeah still not 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 a long time <laughs> mm-hmm. ago well and, and I don't want to make this this day uh, a sad day for you so I, I apologize for that but there's just so oh, no much worries. of this story that <laughs> is so uh, incredible in watching you go through this and and go this uh, you mentioned the test was it a difficult test so for for many people it was not for me because i always have bad luck it was gosh <laughs> I, I don't know I, I i you might be selling yourself short i think there's probably a lot of canadian citizens who wouldn't pass the test i mean yeah because it, so for me they've asked me about history they asked me about like the the geography of Canada mm-hmm. and you know things that I was not even aware of before coming. However, I did get nineteen out of twenty. Oh, that's great! Yeah. That's great. <laughs> well, I studied so hard. Do you want to tell us which one you didn't get? I forgot. So they did not you tell don't have me. To. Yeah, they didn't tell me which one did I didn't got. Uh, but then, yeah, I got. Like I lost one. <laughs> that oh, that is nothing. That's great. That is a, a great score. Uh, so, so you did the test today. You did the ceremony. Uh, we know that this country is not perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like. I know a lot of people like to think that it is. It's certainly not. What do you like about Canada? 
Oh, I like everything about Canada. Canada is like a dream to me. Um, the nature, the people. People here are so welcoming, generous, nice. Um, in fact, like people would think as a Syrian, my community will be all Syrians or I would have Syrians friends. However, all of my friends are Canadians. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so just like the, the generosity of Canada, the diversity that we live here, the multiculturalism, um, yeah, everything in Canada makes makes it a perfect country to live in. What I don't like... Mm-hmm. That was my next question because they can't do anything to you now. You're a citizen now. <laughs> you can talk about what you don't like if there are things that you don't like. Uh, uh, so speaking of Vancouver, it is so pricey. Yes. I can't afford it mm-hmm. like anymore. Sometimes I feel like, oh gosh, it is so expensive. The rent. Um, yeah. I don't yeah. think there are any other problems. Wow. That's not bad. Yeah. That's only like affordability. Yes. I mean, which is for everybody, isn't it? I mean, affordability. Yeah. Not not everybody, but a lot, also, a lot of people. Yeah. I, I don't think British Columbia is so like socially, you know, uh, active like there are no social activities to do everything mm. closes by <laughs> 8 p.m uh, yes so yeah yes well maybe maybe <laughs> that will change um well everything will closes early but do, do you have plans how are you going to celebrate now being an uh, official canadian so today i'm producing the jazz Joel show <laughs> <laughs> which is on hold right now but that's okay <laughs> Just the producing of it. The show will be here. But then on Thursday, the, the like the most Canadian thing to do is watching a hockey game. So mm. I will get to watch my friend Nate playing hockey. Um, I also told my family today to bring me poutine. So just like <laughs> to feel more official. Nice. Um, uh, yeah. I'm just celebrating with you guys. I got them some donuts. Yes, <laughs> you, you brought us gifts, which, which I mean, and no I, complaints. And but. decorated the whole office yes. with Canadian flags. So I'm celebrating with my favorite people here. <laughs> All right. Well, Layla, congratulations. And we are lucky to have you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, this is a Disney-related story, a little different, perhaps from most Disney-related stories. It has to do with copyright and the fact that Mickey Mouse may have landed a new role as a villain in a horror movie. And this is all because the copyright for Disney's 1928 animated short film, Steamboat Willie, has entered the public domain for the first time. Joining me to talk a little bit more about this is John Rizvi, copyright lawyer, also known as the patent professor. John, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thank you. It's, uh, we, I think we tend to forget about uh, just how old things are or what changes when they enter the public domain. How big of a deal is it that Steamboat Willie is now in the public domain? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a huge deal. I mean, this is perhaps Disney's most iconic character. It's the original version of Mickey Mouse uh, from 1928, and the copyrights uh, term was extended to to 95 years, and that expired yesterday, uh, January 1st, 2024. So uh, it's now part of the public domain. And as you mentioned at the beginning, there's already announcements of, uh, of horror flicks using this character. 
which seems like a really big leap for Mickey Mouse. But perhaps I'm guessing people were waiting for this day to come and for it to become in the public domain. Maybe if you could back up a little bit, I maybe should have started with this. How does it all work as far as, and you mentioned that the, the copyright had been extended and that this was a protected character. How does all of that work? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, copyright protection, uh, initially, it's, it's uh, got its roots in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8, uh, grants to authors for limited times protection uh, for their works. And this limited times initially was interpreted to be 14 years for copyright protection. And then uh, it expanded to 28 years. Uh, again, there's been a lot of pressure. Some people call these extensions. They, they, the cynical view is to call them the, the Mickey Mouse Protection Act because from 28 years it went to 50 and then 70 and then 95 years for uh, corporate, uh, for works created by corporations. So 95 years, and that's how over time the copyright term has expanded uh, leading up to yesterday for several years. There's a lot of hope that perhaps there would be a, another change or extension uh, and none came about. So there was no reprieve on the copyright and now Mickey Mouse is finally in the public domain. And how does that work as far as when you talk about the work that and the extension, who actually owns it? And is it an extension in that the owner can simply pay and get an extension or do you have to make an argument? Uh, no, there's no there's no payment for the extension. It's just uh, the duration of the copyright, and it remains in the in the original owner has rights. And they, as long as the copyright is not expired, they have the ability to stop anybody else from from using it. Uh, and that's what Disney has done uh, aggressively for years. So in order to maintain not only the the financial profits on Disney merchandise but also to help maintain Disney's image. And that's the biggest risk that I think uh, Disney faces now is not the, the sale of merchandise because they still have their trademarks, and which is trademark law protects their branding. So anybody that start, tries to sell merchandise or films or anything that confuses consumers as to the origin and consumers believe it, they're buying a Disney product Disney can take action against uh, sales of that nature. Where they're powerless, though, is to stop others from using the Mickey Mouse character as long as the, the person makes it clear that it's not affiliated with Disney and it's not a Disney product. And clearly any sort of, of, uh, of horror flick using Mickey Mouse, it would be hard for Disney to argue that consumers believe it's a Disney film. Uh, so Disney's not going to have much much ability to really stop those uh, types of use of Mickey Mouse going forward. At least the original Steamboat Willie version of Mickey Mouse, which is the black and white Mickey Mouse that a lot of people uh, know, the more slightly more updated version is the Mickey Mouse with red shorts and white gloves, and that copyright is still in force until 2036. So we have about a dozen or so more years of that copyright still in force. Uh, before that expires. But the original Steamboat Willie version is fair game now for anyone to use.
Hmm. And would it, so it would obviously be the, the Disney Corporation. We know Walt Disney passed away quite some time ago, but it would have been the corporation then that kept the copyright going. Why do you think that Correct. after after fighting or after hanging on to it for so long, they've now let it go? So, well, it wasn't voluntary. It's not, uh, uh, there's just, is no provision in the law for an extension after 95 years. Mm. So, uh, saying that they let it go is not really that accurate. It's, it's, they're helpless to stop it, to keep it, uh, ownership and the copyright from expiring. There's nothing they could do at this point. Okay. Who decided uh, that it was that 95 years was the limit? So that's the, the, the Copyright Act in 1998. That was the extension. Mm. Uh, and that was the last time the Copyright Act has, has changed the duration of a copyright. And I guess we've seen similar uh, things happen with copyrights coming out. I saw a story, a story earlier today, and I had actually forgotten about this. I have not seen the movie where Winnie the Pooh is, uh, again, kind of the villain, a bit of a, a horror-type slasher movie. But again, that was something, and I'm guessing people who wanted to make that were waiting And when the copyright ended a couple of years ago. Yeah, exactly. And that... Uh and, and certainly there were people waiting for uh, Mickey Mouse to expire as well. This date's been known for some time. And the new trailer that we that was just released yesterday for a film known as Mickey's Mousetrap, uh, the, the film is, the director said the film is already done. Uh, the release date is in March, but the fact that they didn't finish the film between January 1st and 2nd, clearly it's been something under, under work for some time. And and so that would be fine as far as somebody knowing that the copyright was running out. There was no chance of an extension because that 95-year mark had been met. You could be building that, or they, they clearly have been building that and making that, but as long as there's no release of it before the date? Yeah, exactly. They're, they're not doing anything wrong as long as they don't mislead consumers into thinking that Disney has endorsed their film or somehow license them or they're an official uh, Disney the sponsor or somehow uh, any kind of affiliation could be problematic. So they have to make it clear that this is not a Disney film. Have there been cases then where, where that hasn't been clear or, or companies or, or, or the makers of, uh, of things that, that maybe encroach on the brand have been either sued or held to account? I, I'm thinking of, of Avenue Q, which comes to mind with the, the puppets that look like Muppets. But if you saw Avenue Q, it was not how you uh, would remember Muppets when you were a kid. Or, or have there been cases when people have, have in, in pretty um, public ways broken those copyright laws? If the copyright's in the public domain, it's, uh, it's, it's as long as the, the character, the further out of character you take that, the, the main character, the, the less likely you are to run into problems. So a, a uh, slasher-type horror film of, of Mickey Mouse is way less likely to be seen as, uh, as a Disney film than something more uh, along the character of the Mickey Mouse we all know and love. So I think the more, uh, it's almost, uh, from a legal standpoint, there's, it's, it's almost an enticement to, to really make the character uh, evil. And, and the, the more uh, horror-like the character is, the less likely consumers are to believe it's a Disney-endorsed film.
Right, which would explain, I guess, why we've seen, I think there's been a second horror film separate from that first one that's been announced that is just going to start production later on this year, that we might see more of those. We probably won't see many films with Mickey Mouse, uh, say, uh, riding on a steamboat. Exactly. And, and who knows? I mean, right now there's still a lot of these, there's still some novelty to these iconic copyright characters expiring. There haven't been a lot of them Yet in the coming years, we're going to see Bugs Bunny, Bambi, Peter Pan, Batman, and it remains to be seen whether the novelty of these unique takes of these iconic characters is going to wear off. Of course, you know, with the Winnie the Pooh film, it was, it was somewhat new, it was novel, it's exciting maybe to go see this new take, but once we see the Mickey Mouse horror films and then a couple others, is it really going to be... Uh, that novel is, is it are we going to see this as a trend I don't know and uh, you kind of answered my question I was curious if, if this is kind of the start or Winnie Pooh was the start of the copyrights coming off some major names and, and is that did they all kind of come about around the same time and that's why we're seeing them all come off now yeah exactly there and these are the oldest ones uh, and of course the copyright extension of 95 years uh, we're getting the earliest characters now you know, becoming part of the public domain. And then over time, we'll see the later ones uh, come, you know, lose copyright protection as well. Uh, so we're seeing the first few kind of horror takes of these characters. And I don't know, I haven't really seen any on, on how Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, how the horror film did in terms of revenues and whether it was a commercial success. But uh, if these are commercially successful, then we're likely to see these types of films continue. If the public loses the, the novelty, they, they no longer find it exciting to see, uh, you know, a dark character of an iconic, loved, copyrighted character. If that no longer holds their interest, then we may not see this as much going forward. Right, right now, there certainly seems to be a lot of interest, a lot of demand. So we'll see if that holds. And and once it's in the public domain again, and with with already two uh, Mickey Mouse horror films uh, being announced, so it's really it's up for grabs for anybody. And and as soon as one, even if one person takes this and makes a film, another person could make a very similar film. Yeah, absolutely, uh, they would. Now, of course, the they can't be too close to the first person's film, right? Because those copyrights are going to be still in force. So, um, so they're going to have to face that. They, 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 of course, are not going to have any worry from Disney's copyright on uh, Steamboat Willie version of Mickey Mouse. But certainly, if there's two horror films based on Steamboat Willie. Uh, whoever is second needs to be aware that they're not infringing rights of the first, so they can't be too close to one another either. Right, and it uh, makes sense. Uh, does it apply to, say, the music of Mickey Mouse as well, or is it specifically the copyright of the characters? It's uh, uh, specifically tied to the characters. All right, so the, the M-I-C-K-E-Y, would, is that a song then that, would be, that people could use, or that, that is a copyright song? That, that's copyrighted. I'm not sure of the year or the duration of, of when that expires. All right. Well, it is uh, very interesting to see how people have uh, been waiting for this and are already uh, making uh, this uh, Mickey Mouse uh, character into a, a very different, different character. John, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, so interesting to talk to you about this. Thank you. Always a pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.